Welcome to this episode of Impact Education LLC's Payer Talk CE program, interpreting a complex puzzle, U.S. payer coverage of atopic dermatitis or AD treatments varies widely. My name is Steve Colusi. I'm the manager of the clinical pharmacy strategies team at Highmark, and I'm joined today by Dr. James Chambers. Dr. Chambers is the associate professor of medicine at the Tufts Medical Center Institute for Clinical Research and Health Policy Studies, where his focus is examining insurance company coverage of medical technology and research into the use of cost-effectiveness evidence in the U.S. healthcare system. Welcome, James. Hi, Steve. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And thanks so much for joining us. This is a really meaningful opportunity for me, as well as the listeners, to really hear directly from someone who's looking at the factors that influence coverage policies and cost-effectiveness of atopic dermatitis treatments in the U.S. Before we get started, I want to let our audience know that this Payer Talk CE program is jointly provided by the National Eczema Association, Medical Education Resources, and Impact Education, LLC. And it's designed for 0.5 contact hours of continuing education credit. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, and we'd like to thank them for their support as well. For logistical or technical questions regarding claiming credit or other issues, please email impacteducation at info at impactedu.net. All right, so let's jump in, James. I'd love to, to get started off by hearing a little bit about your role at the Center for the Evaluation of Value and Risk in Health, and uh, what do you do there? Great. Well, I'm an associate professor here at Tufts Medical Center in Boston, and the center I'm based in is the Center for the Evaluation of Value and Risk in Health, or SEVER, a bit of a mouthful there. So this is a center full of health economists predominantly, and we evaluate the value of all aspects of healthcare, be it cost effectiveness of drugs and more in my wheelhouse, how payers are granting patients or their enrollees access to high cost specialty therapies. And um, my research is largely based on the SPEC database, which is a database of commercial health plans, publicly available specialty drug coverage policies. So the SPEC database or the specialty drug evidence and coverage database tracks two things. The first is the, the criteria the plans use to guide their enrollees access to specialty therapies. And by specialty therapies, I mean biologics, but also expansive small molecule therapies. We track things like cell and gene therapies, biosimilars, drugs for autoimmune diseases, orphan, orphan drugs, and so on. And we track with detail the criteria that plans embed in the coverage policies, but also the evidence that plans cite in those publicly available coverage policies. So really what we're trying to do here is understand how payers are making decisions and how consistent is decision-making with the best available evidence. Now, the reason I did this or began working on this is because coming from Ireland and working in England, um, as a pharmacist, there's a single payer over there. So there's not this multitude of farm, of, sorry, insurance companies acting in, in healthcare. But in the US, we have so many insurance companies all acting independently and making their own independent coverage decisions for these specialty therapies. So what we wanted to do here was really empirically understand 
what influence are insurance companies having on patients' access to care? And we track lots of specialty therapies, one of which is dupilumab, which was approved in 2017, firstly for atopic dermatitis. It's now approved, I think, for five different uses. And it's such an interesting case study because dupilumab was the first biologic therapy approved for atopic dermatitis, which beforehand was predominantly managed with, say, emollients or topical corticosteroids or phototherapy even and so on. So the first biologic. And what we wanted to do with our database was to really examine how plans differed or varied in that coverage decisions in the coverage decisions and also how did those coverage decisions evolve over time so when i talk about the coverage criteria i'm referring to clinical criteria so the patient or does the health plan require patients to have symptoms of particular severity step therapy protocols so the health plans require patients to fail prior therapy before being able to access the pilumab in this case and also uh, prescribed requirements. So the requirement that a certain type of physician prescribe the therapy. Now, the research that I hope to talk about today focuses on dupilumab because it was the first approved. Of course, there's other therapies now approved for atopic dermatitis, which we do track and spec, but we don't have that longitudinal data, which I'd like to re um, refer to today. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much for that introduction. And just to um, highlight and catch everybody in the audience up, we do have four specialty therapies um, on the market currently for atopic dermatitis, two biologics, that's the dupilumab that you referred to, as well as tralokinumab. But we also have abrocitinib and apatacitinib, which are not technically biologics per se, more small molecules, but they fall into that category that, uh, as you mentioned, James, would be um, tracked uh, by your data. So looking forward to hearing a little bit about the data that you've collected so far and, and some of the, the next steps. So um, why don't you just um, tell us a little bit about what you found in your analysis? Okay, great. So in the SPEC database, we track decisions from the largest 17 or 18 commercial health plans. So you know the names of those health plans, I'm sure. Now, what we found, the first main finding was variation in decision-making. And let's think about the clinical criteria first. So we found in 2017, there were four distinct clinical criteria, the plans we're using to ensure that a patient was eligible for access to dupilumab for atopic dermatitis. The first was a body surface area requirement. So we find that some plans required that patients had at least 10% of the body surface area affected by the disease before being eligible for treatment. The second was that some plans required that patients have specific symptoms. So say edema or crusting and oozing off, um, off the lesion in order to be eligible for treatment. A third requirement was that some plans required patients to have symptoms that were present for at least three years before they were eligible for dupilumab, which is a pretty onerous requirement, particularly for patients with, say, severe disease, which, you know, quite a debilitating condition. And last but not least, some plans, few plans, but some did have this requirement that the patients have an investigated global assessment score of three or four. Now, the key here is that not every health plan included all of these requirements. In fact, no health plan did. Some plans included some, but not others. And this is important because this meant that patients' access to dupilumab for atopic dermatitis very dependent on who their insurer was. So the insurance company was affecting access. Now, of course, there's appeals processes and so on. But nevertheless, with the criteria embedded in the coverage policies, we find that 
variation. And I hope to talk about variation in step therapy requirements also today. But before I do, the second main finding is that coverage requirements have evolved over time. So it's quite exciting now to have this longitudinal data in spec that allows us to examine changes over time. And what we, I want to highlight two of those clinical requirements one being that 10% of body surface area affected. In 2017, 30% of plans had that requirement. So that requirement that the patient have at least 10% of the body surface area affected by moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in order to be eligible. Now by 2021, that increased to over 50%. So we saw greater consensus among plans for patients that to meet that very particular clinical criterion. Now, alternatively, 30% of plans required that patients have symptoms that were present for at least three years in 2017. But by 2021, we found that all plans had removed that requirement, which I think was a good thing because that was a particularly onerous requirement. So what that tells us is that coverage evolved over time. We find that health plans gained a degree of consensus over time in those coverage requirements. And in some ways, coverage, I guess, became more restrictive with one requirement, but became less restrictive in another way. So the big takeaway, I think, for me was variation decision making and also that evolution of change in requirements over time. These, they, these requirements aren't static by any means. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I love the way that, that you put that there was a growing consensus over time. I think that's a really interesting point because, you know, from the health plan perspective, when a new therapy comes out and, you know, really before dupilumab, there was not much in the way of, you know, uh, advanced therapies for atopic dermatitis. But when a new therapy comes out for a disease like atopic dermatitis, where there's not a lot of options at the moment for that severe of disease, it's somewhat of a, uh, a scramble for health plans. And you would imagine that each health plan, as you, you pointed out, is making their own decisions based on their own clinical analysis of the best available evidence at the time, which I'm sure the evidence has advanced significantly since it first came out on the market as well. But one part of this analysis that all health plans do is, is what's called a market level analysis, where you know they go out onto the web and look for other health plans criteria, try to determine what are other plans doing? Are we in line? Are we too restrictive in some ways and, and not enough in others? And, and it's good to see that in terms of appropriateness of you know the criteria, it has become more appropriate over time, which means that market level analysis process is working. And so that's something I think we need to to continue doing as payers is just rely on each other, right? We're we're all you know looking at the same data, interpreting it differently, and it's really important that we keep in mind that you know one patient, depending on uh, which health plan they choose, they shouldn't get the medication or not get the medication, they're the same patient. And um, it's important that the criteria align to, to some extent. That's also, I think, really important consideration from the provider standpoint, as well as, you know, providers, you know, when they are prescribing these medications, it's a guessing game many of the time um, to try to understand what criteria do I need to justify to this health plan versus the other health plan that I just tried to justify the same prescription for a different yeah. patient for. So um, great to hear about the, the finding that the consensus is being reached more over time. So speaking of prescribers, I, I want to also chat with you a little bit about your findings with regard to prescriber requirements. And so one thing that we've heard a lot about in the previous few episodes of the Payer Talk CE series, which if you're listening to this, but you haven't heard the other episodes, you know, I really encourage you to check them out. But one thing that we heard about previously is restricting patients to certain providers 
has its challenges. And so are we seeing a lot of payers restrict prescriptions to dermatologists and allergy specialists, or are we seeing that payers are allowing prescribing of these therapies by generalist physicians, like primary care physicians who are gonna be working in consultation with those specialists? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, with the SPEC database, this is one of the access criteria we track. And overall, so not focusing on dupilumab and not atopic dermatitis, but specialty drugs more generally, we've seen an increase in the use of prescriber requirements over time. So from 2017 through to 2023. From my perspective, that's not so much health plans becoming more restrictive. It probably reflects greater precision and more detail in these coverage policies. Much to the challenge my research team is that these coverage policies have become much longer and more detailed over time. And health plans are, you know, dictating more with respect to this, you know, prescriber requirement. Now, I would see it more for rare diseases than we would for these chronic diseases, but we do see it for chronic diseases here as well. In fact, for dupilumab and for our for the little analysis we're talking about today, there were two types of prescriber requirements. One was a requirement that the prescriber consult with, say, a dermatologist. The other was that the was that the prescriber was a dermatologist, so it was prescribed by a specialist. And in 2017, we found that 60% of coverage policies included a prescriber requirement, and two thirds of those prescriber requirements was a requirement for a specialist, meaning the dermatologist, to prescribe the therapy. Now, fast forward now to 2023, and the percentage is relatively stable at just below 60%. However, the key difference now is that only, I would say, 20% to 25% of the time do we see a requirement for specialists to prescribe the therapy. Rather, the majority of occasions, the prescriber can consult with the dermatologist when they're prescribing the therapy, which I think is a good thing. It provides much more flexibility and it is looping in the dermatologist or the allergy specialist, but still providing some flexibility for that sort of primary care doctor to use the therapy. Now, I think prescriber requirements used correctly are perfectly appropriate. So, you know, one of the therapies we track in SPEC is for spinal muscular atrophy. I don't think it's a restriction requiring a neurologist who specializes in SMA to prescribe a gene therapy for SMA. Um, in this case, I do think it provides a hurdle in some cases for patients, maybe additional co-pays for the patients, not only to see their primary care doctor, but to also see the specialist. In some ways, it could be a good thing, though. I mean, particularly for um, specialty clinicians most likely can better predict which patients would respond best to dupilumab in this instance or any atopic dermatitis therapy. So you maybe get better tailoring of therapy there. So that, that is something that we hope to watch moving forward is just how that prescribed requirement is used. It certainly seems it's being used more often, um, but I guess in a number of instances, it's maybe a good thing, an appropriate thing. Yeah, and, and to your point, I, I think it's all about the phrasing, right? We, we love to, to use terms like requirements instead of restriction because it has a, a slightly more positive spin to it, but uh, point taken, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. I published a, a study recently on migraine therapies and found a very similar trend in terms of prescriber requirements that about 95% of the plans that required some kind of prescriber requirement had similar language written, the prescription was written by or in consultation with. So it's interesting to see that that trend seems to be crossing different uh, disease states as well. Yeah, I mean, just a quick point of prescriber requirements. I mean, I think for patients based rurally, 
who need to see a specialist, that can be an additional challenge for them. Maybe not so much for a topic dermatitis, but for other rare disease potentially, but good points. Absolutely. And, and I think that's a, a really important um, aspect to consider is, is the social determinants of health. And, you know, uh, even if a prescriber is 15 minutes driving away, it doesn't sound necessarily like too big a barrier for patients. However, depending on their, those social determinants of health, it, it could be impossible for them to, to make it there. So, you know, maybe their PCP is closer, televisits, things like that can help. And um, that was uh, some of the information that we talked about in the first episode of this payer talk series. So um, again, in case you haven't checked that out already, make sure to give that a listen. So I want to move on into um, something that you mentioned earlier, which is the step therapy requirements as well. So tell me a little bit about what you saw with step therapy requirements that health plans are placing on these atopic dermatitis treatments. So we think a lot about step therapy requirements with respect to database. So just to orientate you to what we do, we track the line of therapy, um, so, so the payer line of therapy, so the cover line of therapy, and also what are the therapies the patient has to step through or try and experience treatment failure before they can access a particular therapy. Now, we found for dupilumab for atopic dermatitis that 2017, 90% of coverage policies included a step therapy protocol. Um, and in 2015, that reduced to just over 50%. So we did see a removal of step therapy protocols over time. On top of that, we found of off step therapy protocols, the average number of steps uh, declined from almost an average of three and a half treatments to an average of two and a half treatments. So takeaway here is that we see fewer step therapy protocols and off the step therapy protocols that do exist, we see an average, a, a smaller number of steps or fewer steps embedded in those step therapy protocols. Now I looked at 2023 data before um, I spoke with you today and we still find there's lots of different flavors of step therapy protocols amongst these policies. So in 2023, we see five different variations of step therapy, which, you know, I think is is notable. Now, just to recap on dupilumab for atopic dermatitis, it's approved for patients whose disease is not adequately controlled with topical prescription therapies. So this is a requirement or this is embedded in the, the FDA indication. So we found that two plans had that requirement that the patient had the prior, you know, first feel a topical steroid or a calcineurin inhibitor. However, we found four more onerous step therapy requirements, the most onerous of which was a requirement for the patient to fail two topical steroids, one calcineurin inhibitor, and one systemic agent. So that pair, this was just one pair in our sample, covered dupilumab as a fifth line therapy. With the majority of other plans, it was either two second line or third line. Um, so we did see variation there in the number of steps. And I think this is important because again, it speaks to the variation and patient access criteria, depending on who your insurer is, will really affect your path to get dupilumab for atopic dermatitis. And thinking from an evidence-based medicine perspective, we should see more consensus there, I, I think. You know, of course, every plan is a different patient population and the different budgets and so on. But nevertheless, that seems more variation that um, that would see, see, seem warranted. I do think in step therapy more generally, there needs to be great flexibility there. And I know there's some legislation, some state legislation, some national legislation that is debating this. And step therapy is appropriate when it drives patients towards effective alternatives and cheaper alternatives that are effective for those patients and are sufficient for those patients. 
but the decision should be transparent and should be evidence-based and you know I would like to see more transparency, I guess, in those payer policies for how they derive that that particular step therapy protocol. Absolutely. And and one of the challenges, again, is just that each individual payer is making their own individual decisions in many circumstances. And that, that leads to a lot of differences of clinical opinion, just as there would be within a clinic, um, you know, with uh, two providers looking at the same patient, they may reach a different clinical conclusion um, as to the, the next best therapy for this individual. However, this seems pretty drastic. Uh, you know, difference between second line in, in some payers' eyes and fifth line in another is, is a pretty substantial difference. And I think one of the challenges that we have is currently the absence of, of guideline support with regard to these biologic and um, systemic agents that are being used for um, moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. So hopefully as the American Academy of Dermatology um, is planning to put out the updated guidelines in the fourth quarter of 2024, we'll have a little bit more consistency. But I would just assume over time, again, we will move towards that consensus as you described earlier. And so um, with regard to step therapy, were you able to see if the payers who are requiring step therapy through uh, these different agents are requiring off-label systemic agents, and are they looking at phototherapy as well? On occasion, yes, we did. So we found two pairs included phototherapy among their step therapy requirements. And I do think it's reasonable to include phototherapy as an option um, for first-line therapy, but we talked about patients in rural settings and so on. It is a challenge for some patients in regions where they don't have access to phototherapy. So that can be a restriction that's, you know, a real life, you know, challenge for patients to um, access that. You mentioned the guidelines, you know, um, I know that the American Academy of Dermatology have updated the guidelines for topical treatments for atopic dermatitis. That's a good thing. I'm excited from a researcher perspective to see the updated guidelines that you previously mentioned. You know, it's an intriguing, it's a very intriguing natural experiment. I mean, how quickly do payers adjust the coverage policies to account for the guidelines? Are, you know, what is the degree of consistency of coverage policies with guidelines? We've done some work that was published in Health Affairs towards the end of 2021 that looked at the consistency of step therapy with clinical guidelines. And we find a high degree of consistency for some diseases, but much less consistency for other diseases, notably psoriasis, which may or may not be relevant to atopic dermatitis here. So it will be interesting to see that, that degree of consistency. I do think that there is a real need for updated guidelines, particularly when you see the variation in the clinical requirements. I think there should be some clinical consensus or some prevailing clinical opinion that helps drive consensus with respect to that. So it's something we'll be closely watching and we're, we're looking forward to analyzing it. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and with regard to uh, psoriasis, you know, I've, I've had some discussions with providers who liken where we are with atopic dermatitis to the early days of the psoriasis biologic boom, which was, yeah. you know, early 2000s. And, you know, we've come such a long way since then. However, we're starting over in, in many ways in terms of atopic dermatitis and at a speed that is much more rapid with the introduction of uh, four uh, biologic and systemic agents within a very short period of time, as opposed to the years and years between each biologic for psoriasis. So that's, that's been an interesting difference for sure. 
Yeah, just just on that, um, one of the so we see this agreement between clinical guidelines and ICER on how biologics should be used for psoriasis, and they recommend very early in the treatment pathway, so even first line. What's interesting about psoriasis and atopic dermatitis is the availability of very inexpensive alternatives. So we still saw when looking at psoriasis, the vast majority of payers required steps through methotrexate, atopical corticosteroids, or whatever it is before the biologic. Phototherapy was in there, of course. So it will be interesting to see whether there's that similar, albeit accelerated, sort of path for atopic dermatitis that we saw for psoriasis. So plenty to watch, I think, with respect to that. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So James, um, what do you think this difference between the different health plans criteria that they are looking at for these prior authorization requirements, what kind of impact does that have on people living with atopic dermatitis, their families, their caregivers? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and it's really at the crux of everything we try to do here with this research agenda is understand that variability and access. And I think we really do need to understand what impact it has on patients. One thing with respect to database, we focused almost exclusively to the on that access criteria and the differences there. What we hope to do moving forward is to better understand the impact on patient access in terms of utilization and potentially health outcomes. So do we see more onerous policies you know, delaying patients' access and what does that mean for patients and and the caregivers. An important limitation of what we did here, and really should have emphasized this earlier, in fact, was that we don't account for patient cost sharing. This, we just looked at the clinical criteria, the step therapy protocols and the prescribed requirements. And for, you know, a payer could have very generous coverage policy, but the cost sharing is significant to patients and it delays access. And I think what I would like to see is cost sharing that's appropriate and it certainly doesn't present a significant hurdle for many patients and payers should work with employers and so on to really ensure that you know that isn't something that's affecting patients access we you know patients who need these therapies should have access to them it shouldn't be an ability of you know ability to pay or not that's driving access i certainly agree with you on that and and that is definitely a a point that has been echoed in in some of our previous episodes of, of this payer talk series the idea that you can go through all of these hurdles. The doctor says it's appropriate. You know, you as the patient agree to this therapy, and then the health plan even agrees to pay for it, and then you still can't afford it. It's just that's a barrier that I think absolutely needs to be overcome. So you mentioned next steps, and and you know, I'll be honest with you, I don't uh, get excited about future research ideas all that often. But the idea that we can potentially tie the strictness of prior authorizations to outcomes. And, you know, just the the concept of this idea that all of these pieces of data are going to come together to tell a story is very exciting. I'm very interested to hear what kind of next steps you have on other aspects of this research. Are you doing additional follow-up analyses, looking at other treatments for atopic dermatitis, et cetera? Yeah, well, I'm glad you're as enthusiastic as we are about it. I mean, so this whole initiative is really trying to to figure out how can we get the right drug, the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. And the payer policies are such an important piece of it. So if we can really improve that pace and get these drugs to patients that really need them faster and earlier and get them stable in an expedited way, all to the better. Now, with respect to atopic dermatitis, you mentioned it earlier, there's now four to five specialty therapies in this space for atopic dermatitis. So I've you know mentioned the Pilumab today. 
What I hope to do very soon is begin to see how the introduction of these other therapies is affecting things. The more choice, the better, you know, the more competition, the better. And it may be that you see different therapies being prioritized over other therapies, or maybe the steps, steps from through one specialty therapy to get to the next specialty therapy. There's biologics and there's non-biologic specialty therapy. So really to see how that market changes will be intriguing. The other thing that we mentioned was the guidelines. And, uh, you know, we really would like to examine pair responsiveness to these guidelines. And the, if the assumption that we have is that these guidelines will be meaningful, that they'll change the recommended use of these therapies or dictate how those should be used, then we will certainly be scrutinizing that moving forward, as we will do with evidence. So as you mentioned earlier, the evidence is growing and maturing for at least dupilumab. Wouldn't it be interesting to see if we've got really compelling real-world evidence supporting a product? How does that evidence affect how health plans prioritize the product? So we'll be also, as I mentioned earlier, we do track the evidence the plants cite. So really beginning to see what evidence is diffusing into these policies, what you know, what are payers you know paying attention to, and ultimately. Did that evidence affect patients' access through these policies? So all those things, lots of work to do. That's so exciting. And to your point, again, going back to our analogy, comparing atopic dermatitis to the early days of plaque psoriasis, I think one of the areas that has really developed as more and more plaque psoriasis biologic therapies have come onto the market is the step through one biologic before you can access another. And so, you know, this is... Again, very early days of atopic dermatitis treatment with these options, and it's exciting to see how it's going to develop at, over time. Couldn't agree more. All right, perfect. Well, James, thank you so much for helping us better understand how insurance coverage is impacting patients with atopic dermatitis. It has certainly been a pleasure speaking with you and, and learning from you, and I hope that our audience has enjoyed it as well. So I'd like to also thank our sponsor, Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, for their support of this educational activity. And thank you, everyone, for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.